Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today is Thursday, January 4th. I'm Stephen Overly. Back when the COVID-19 pandemic forced many of us to work and attend school from home, the disadvantages of having slow internet or no internet at all became more glaring than ever. And so Washington shelled out billions of dollars to help people get online. There are now 22 million households enrolled in the Affordable Connectivity Program, each receiving about $30 per month toward their internet bill. For some, that's been enough to make internet access free. But my colleague, Politico tech reporter John Hendel, reports that the program is now running out of money. A lot of people view it as one of the, the biggest moments for the digital divide conversations, for the efforts to solve that, and it could really go either way at this point. He says those millions of households stand to lose the benefit within months unless Congress steps in. And that could leave millions of people without home internet just before the November election. The real concern is that Congress just fumbles the ball and the whole thing blows up and there's no real way to get that going again. On the show today, John explains why partisan politics could kill this widely popular program. So, John, tell me about this program. Why is it facing a cash crunch? This is the Affordable Connectivity Program, and it's an interesting case study given, you know, this came about initially during the pandemic, but was one of those big aid programs that you know, Congress looked at and wanted to make permanent, but never actually figured out how they were going to do that. So they appropriated many billions of dollars for it, about $3 billion during a pandemic relief measure, and then about $14 billion in the infrastructure law. But they just never figured out long-term what that would look like. But this was something where Democrats and Republicans had come together, said, ultimately, we as, you know, a Congress, as a society, we want to help low-income households pay their internet bills. This was something Congress had never really done at this scale, never contemplated doing. And now more than 22 million households are subscribed to this. And the money for the program is going to run out in April. And Congress is going to have to figure out what to do about that, if, if anything, over these next few months, which will have big stakes for these 22 million households. Well, that's typical of Congress in many ways to have a program, but not quite sure how they're going to fund it. You know, and as you said, there are millions of people who rely on this program now. You talked to one of them, a, a woman in rural North Carolina. What was her story? Yeah, no, this was a woman named Rolanda Hayden, very sweet woman. She had been part of this program for, I guess, a couple of years at this point. It came about at a perfect time for her, given she's in her 50s and was studying to complete a degree in criminal justice. And you know, realized pretty quickly, you know, at this point in the pandemic that she needed internet connectivity at home to be able to take her classes, to interact with professors, to look at materials. And prior to hearing about this program, she had been debating having to use some of her limited scholarship money on an internet connection. That was an active budget consideration from her initially. And she had a friend of hers, a woman named Yvette, who told her about you know, the Affordable Connectivity Program. And this is something that ultimately really, really helped in the final stages of her completing this bachelor's degree that was instrumental to her getting a job at a local courthouse after, which she still has now and, and works multiple days a week. You know, we spoke for, you know, a long time about just what that's meant for her, why that's great. You know, the word she kept using was blessed. And 
you know, says it's still something she views as a vital lifeline, a vital connectivity for her day to day. So, you know, I think she's troubled when she hears about that potentially going away. You know, when I talked to her, she was pretty blunt and direct and said that even now, you know, her income is still pretty limited and that if it went away, she would probably have to give up the Internet. Many of us take high-speed internet for granted. You know, if we live in an area where it's readily available or, or we have the income to be able to afford it. So I, I think it's important hearing kind of these stories of how it is transformational to people. I wonder how emblematic her story is of other people in this program. You know, do they fit into a particular demographic profile or, or have a particular political affiliation? You know, I think you're seeing a pretty widespread mix of different folks across the, the 22 million households. I know, you know, you've seen people talk about, you know, how this has helped older Americans or veterans or, or lots of different groups in that. You know, so I think, you know, there is diversity among who is benefiting. To that point, political affiliation, you are seeing that across the country, too. I mean, a lot of both blue and red states have a lot of households subscribed to the Affordable Connectivity Program at this point. That's a broadness of popularity and broadness of interest that I think people do find pretty compelling when they look at this, especially when you consider that this is a program that's about three years old. Again, it's a pretty new project in that way. But, you know, that, again, underscores just what it would really mean if this were to suddenly collapse in a few months. I think for a long time, Congress looked at this and they were like, well, you know, it's a ways off until we're going to have to deal with this. Now, April's right around the corner, and Congress really doesn't have any bigger plan for how to keep this going after that. I was curious about who gets the subsidy, because I know when it launched, it was a bipartisan program, right? It something that Trump initiated, Biden codified it into law. Now it's become a flashpoint, though, politically. So what exactly is the political dynamic at play here? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting political dynamic, and I think it's pretty nuanced. I don't think it's fully, you know, you know, Democrats are for it and Republicans are against. It's one of those fights where, you know, you are seeing a lot of Democratic support for it, for sure. You're seeing Democratic lawmakers repeatedly bringing this up in hearings throughout the year. You are seeing the White House kind of rallying around it. You know, the White House in October submitted a a quest for $6 billion to keep it going at least through the end of 2024. But for Republicans, you know, I think the thing to keep in mind is that there's really two camps. You know, one camp that I think is a little bit more straightforward in, in how much they support it, too. You have seen Republican lawmakers, you know, at least a mix of them saying, you know, like, yes, we do want more funding for this. We're not putting conditions on what that looks like necessarily. You know, Senator Wicker, Republican uh, from Mississippi, he had led a letter last summer where, you know, he and a few of his Republican colleagues in the Senate had said, like, well, maybe we use unobligated COVID aid to keep this going a little longer while we consider its future. You know, or there was a, a problem solvers letter in the House where you saw some Republican members like Congresswoman Nancy Mace sign and say, like, you know what, let's find appropriations in the next big appropriations bill and keep that going. But at the same time, there is another camp of Republicans who I think are a little more skeptical of how the program is working. And that, I think, is the real debate that has kind of stalled out some of the discussions to some extent on Capitol Hill right now. You know, one good example of this that we didn't actually get into the story, but that I'd point to is pretty relevant. You know, the chairwoman of the FCC, Jessica Rosenworcel, she had testified, I guess, a month or so ago about a lot of different telecom issues, including the Affordable Connectivity Program. And, you know, Chairwoman Rosenworcel, she said, you know, if this funding runs out, 22 million households will get 
unplugged from the internet. And Senators Cruz and Thune, they and, and some other GOP lawmakers, you know, they responded pretty sharply to say, we view this as highly misleading. You know, they said, and this goes back to their oversubscription concerns about the program. They said, there's not data to suggest that these 22 million households will lose the internet if they lose their subsidy. You know, that ultimately there's a pretty big gap between who actually gets the subsidy and who who needs it at a core level. And that that's kind of a classic GOP concern. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. How much of the Republican concerns are animated by fears of abuse of the program? You know, I know the FCC inspector general looked into this issue, uh, you know, looking for perhaps instances of fraud. So what do we know about how that is influencing this debate? Yeah, I think that's a really important part of this, too. I think there are multiple different instances where the Government Accountability Office and the FCC inspector general, they have pointed to some concerns around the program. These types of problems can include duplicate subscribers or, you know, the FCC inspector general at one point had found eligible individual accounting for sometimes many different, you know, enrollees to this program, which, you know, is not supposed to be the case. That's something that I think you've seen the Federal Communications Commission try to be uh, responsive to. This this is the government agency that that is currently running, kind of operating this program. And whenever this stuff is brought up, you know, the FCC is pretty quick to say, like, you know what? Sure. Like, let's try to find more accountability measures. Let's try to be a little more careful about how we're running it. When the GAO released a big report the other year, kind of laying out several different concerns, including, you know, the fact that the FCC didn't have a very specific anti-fraud strategy and, and other things like that. You know, the FCC said, yes, we are on it. We're going to have that. We're going to hopefully satisfy all of these things in a matter of months. And so that's been kind of an ongoing dance that we're, we're seeing. And, you know, I think Republicans on Capitol Hill have been, you know, watching other players like the FCC inspector general to make sure, you know, that they're fully comfortable, that the inspector general is fully comfortable with where the program is going before they put billions of new dollars into it. So that's still happening right now. I mean, the inspector general has promised a bigger audit of the program by early this year. Initially, I think that was supposed to be completed by November, but it's still been kind of dragging on a little bit. So that just adds to the kind of uncertainty around this timeline because, you know, Republicans are wanting all this better data. It's not totally clear whether we're going to fully have that by the time the money runs out. Got it. So we could sort of see these short-term continuations as they get this more information and, and figure out where the heck, you know, long-term funding can actually come from. Yeah. And and just kind of how big to make any reforms, if they are making any, what that push and pull really looks like. I will say one of the biggest sources of anxiety, though, is, I think for a lot of supporters of the program, is that there's just not that much dialogue that's apparent between Republicans and Democrats about this at all. You know, you're seeing it come up in hearings and in different letters, but we are three or four months away from all this funding running out, and there's not 
an elaborate set of negotiations that people are aware of, at least, about what that looks like or any grand bargain uh, on this. So, you know, that that I think is fueling some of the concern. Why is that the case? Why aren't they talking about this more if the deadline is coming up so soon? You know, I've heard different theories about that. You know, and some some folks have said, you know, that there should have been a bigger Democratic ask earlier. Again, Democratic lawmakers and other officials have been saying that there's this big need for more money for a long time. But the White House didn't officially make a request for $6 billion until late October. Uh, You know, and there could be a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one theory is that by kind of waiting till closer to the deadline, you know, you create, you know, this scenario where there's not much room to negotiate details of the program. You just need more money because there's not time to do that. So some people have theorized that that's one element of why we're in this situation. Uh, You know, but there's really just been no formal sit-downs or legislation for the most part uh, addressing this. You're not seeing bills getting marked up to reform the program or anything. And that's something that theoretically could have been happening in a bigger way in the House Energy and Commerce Committee. That's led by Republicans. They are the members who are really raising some of the concerns about this program. But I think what you're really just seeing are questions and not answers. Right now, I think there's these fundamental questions around just government funding generally. You know, you've got these CRs that carry us through early this year. You have, you know, issues around Ukraine funding and the border, lots of other things. And so as with many things with Capitol Hill, I think there's a concern that, you know, there's limited bandwidth uh, and limited time. And that could that could leave this as one of those major, major big ticket items that uh, that could end up on the cutting room floor, uh, which would be huge for the 22 million households that are that are part of it. Totally. I mean, to spend or not to spend is like the <laughs> the question in Washington on so many policy issues, including this one. You know, I do have to note it is an election year. You know, President Biden has made expanding Internet access a goal of his administration. I imagine it's a nice talking point as he runs for re-election, you know, bringing Internet to more people. How much of this partisan division over the program is driven by the fact that this is a presidential election year? Yeah, I think there's no escaping that, you know, the fact that we've got a November presidential election is going to be influencing everything on Capitol Hill. And I think that makes any bigger spending requests much harder. You know, and I think that that speaks to how perceptions of this program have transformed a little bit over the last three years. You know, again, it launched in a bipartisan way. And you do have Democratic and Republican lawmakers who do support lots of aspects of it. But, you know, I've talked to some some folks who, you know, have have looked at this and they've said, you know, over time, Republicans on Capitol Hill see it more as a Democratic program. And that influences, I think, what the negotiations look like when the White House sends up a big $6 billion ask. And, you know, they need to come up with this a few months out from election time. So I think that is affecting things, but I think it can affect it in a lot of different ways, you know, both helping and hurting efforts to keep the program going. I mean, you know, it, it makes things difficult on, on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, do any members of Congress really want to you know, kill a big program like this or let it die when, you know, they're going to be, you know, potentially on the ballot box in a few months themselves. Right. Well, it, it's interesting to me that it's sort of seen as a Democratic program or, or something that's beneficial to Democrats when some of the biggest beneficiaries of the program are people living in rural red states. It stuck out to me a line in your story about how House Speaker Mike Johnson of Louisiana 
represents a district where 29% of households are enrolled in this program. And I think you wrote that that's nearly double the average, you know, for a congressional district. So it would seem to me that at least some Republicans could face political backlash if this program were to go away. And that could be ultimately what what sways this. I think, you know, one of the biggest things to watch over the next month to two months or so will be how much pressure certain members see from their home state on that count. I mean, this is something that is also kind of set up as a cornerstone of the Biden administration's other efforts to get billions of dollars of broadband grants out to help expand the infrastructure. You know, this was the other big part of the infrastructure laws kind of broadband provisions. You know, there was $14 billion going to the Affordable Connectivity Program, but there was also $42 billion going to a broadband infrastructure program that, you know, prioritizes affordability. All of that kind of fits into one bigger puzzle, both in terms of like the grant requirements for infrastructure, the Biden administration's vision on some of this. And so I think there are state officials right now, there's governors who are looking at this and they're like, we don't want a key cornerstone of our affordability strategy to just go away in the middle of all of these other efforts that are still ongoing right now. So, you know, I think that's going to be a source of pressure. And I think seeing how that affects folks like, you know, Speaker Mike Johnson and and some of the other players in this, that's going to be important to watch. I was going to ask, you know, as we enter these next few pivotal months, I mean, who are the lawmakers that you're really watching who have taken this on or, or will have key votes on this or key voices in kind of this debate? Yeah, I think there's a lot that that have taken kind of lead roles so far. You know, among the Democrats, you know, I look at folks like Senator Ben Ray Lujan. Uh, he chairs the, the broadband subcommittee on Senate Commerce. And, you know, he's really been bringing this up, uh, you know, kind of at every turn, trying to say that, yes, we need more funding. This is why it's important. His Democratic counterpart uh, on the House Energy and Commerce Committee is Congresswoman Doris Matsui. She has also been kind of leading efforts there and helping to really push for more funding. But, you know, you've seen it, especially among Democratic lawmakers, kind of across the board. You know, even, you know, leaders like Hakeem Jeffries, you know, has been speaking to why this is important and kind of on the road, like touting this program in that way. So those are folks who will will matter, I think, you know, like hearing how receptive they are to, um, you know, to GOP concerns, to, to where that dialogue goes. That's going to be important. Um, in addition to, you know, some of the, the key appropriators, um, you know, Senator Chris Van Hollen's, uh, you know, someone who comes to mind who has really kind of helped focus on on telecom issues on the Appropriations Committee. And, you know, I've spoken to him multiple times in the last year about this. You know, he knows it's a top priority. He knows they're going to have to get some sort of bipartisan consensus if the program's going to continue. So those are members, I think, of their but the others I'd, I'd point to, you know, are the, the top Republicans who have been raising concerns and kind of seeing where that discussion goes for them. Uh, you know, Senator Cruz and Senator Thune, they've been some of the loudest voices on this and some of the most skeptical of just adding money to a program that they're not really sure works as well as it's intended to. And their rhetoric has gotten a little bit sharper, I think, as time has gone on, which I think supporters also find concerning. Senator Thune is the number two Senate Republican. You know, he is, you know, Mitch McConnell's right hand man when it comes to a lot of this. So I think his word is going to go quite a long way uh, in the Senate. But at the end of the day, you know, I think a lot of the folks I talked to said that the chamber to really watch will be the House. This is a chamber led by Republicans, most of whom voted against the infrastructure law that essentially codified the Affordable Connectivity Program 
how does that actually work? What does that math actually look like, especially when there's such distance between the parties there? Uh, so I think that's the harder one. That's what I would really, really watch, you know, because again, Speaker Johnson's also trying to hold on to his job. If he has a lot of members of the Republican base or in his party and caucus there, not happy with funding this program or not doing it without really intense reforms, that's going to matter for him. You know, he's going to have to watch that pretty closely. And so I think that's the dynamic that's really going to be determinative when it comes to this. We're talking about the Affordable Connectivity Program, but you had a story a few months ago now about court challenges to another government subsidy program, the Universal Service Fund. It's similar in that it also provides money to help low-income people, you know, get phone and internet access. It just made me think, you know, about people have been talking for a long time about closing the digital divide. I know, you know, as long as you and I have been covering tech and telecom issues, people have been talking about this. It seems in a way that we're moving backwards, potentially, if these programs are going away. Is that the case? Is is this sort of undermining some of those digital divide goals? The way I would think about it is, you know, I don't think we're moving backwards because a lot of this is still new and novel and in a bigger way that we haven't seen before. Meaning, you know, the Affordable Connectivity Program, that's something that five, 10 years ago, a lot of policymakers in like the broadband arena, the telecom space, they couldn't have dreamed of. You know, the idea that there would be a 20 million plus program helping households, there eventually could be 50 million based on eligibility. That's something that is very, very striking, that is new, that is, you know, I think something that a lot of folks look at as a, as a big success. Um, I think to see it collapse suddenly, though, to your point, would be a huge, huge step, uh, you know, a lot of people would argue, in the wrong direction. But at the same time, I think it's a reckoning for all of these subsidy systems. I think that's true for the Universal Service Fund and that system at the FCC, I think that's true for the Affordable Connectivity Program. I think Congress and the U.S. government writ large right now is in the middle of a much bigger discussion over what this should look like and getting it right. Getting it right and getting it effective takes time, takes some effort, and takes some tensions. And it's unfortunate that, you know, you've got now, like in the case of the ACP, 22 million households kind of hanging in the, the brink, depending on, on where that lands. I mean, that's probably not the ideal way to manage that conversation. But I think the conversation itself, you know, is a natural part of figuring out these new systems. Right. A lot of debate still to be had. In, and like you said, 22 million households sort of hanging in the balance, which is not does not seem like an ideal way to to be making policy. Um, well, listen, John, great to have you on Politico Tech. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be on. Great to talk about all this. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our managing producer is Annie Reese, and our producer is Afra Abdullah. Our editors are Steve Hoiser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. See you back here tomorrow.